welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this May 2012 episode of the podcast, we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862 by focusing on land records. But first, we will stop by the Genealogy Insider blog and talk with managing editor Diane Haddad about the recent announcement by Ancestry.com that it has acquired Archives.com. Then, in our top tips segment, we're going to dive right into land records with a discussion of the records of the 1862 Homestead Act with Thomas McKinty. And that's based on his video class from the Family Tree University Spring Virtual Conference. Then in our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we'll take a look at the Newberry Atlas of Historical County Boundaries website with Nancy Hendrickson, who featured the website in a toolkit article last year in Family Tree Magazine. And then in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Diana Christman-Smith will bring some clarity to her top five list of confusing land terms. And then Carrie Scott will be back with another edition of the Social Media Minute. And finally, we'll check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who has some great land record resources for us. So there's a lot to cover. Let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy News with Diane Haddad. As always, we're going to kick off this episode with the news from the blogosphere. And to give us the scoop is the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. There's been a lot going on. The big news everybody's talking about is Ancestry's acquisition of archives.com. And I know that you were just blogging about that. Uh, Tell us what's going on. Well, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. We weren't expecting it. Um, Here we were all thinking, oh, archives.com is sure going to give Ancestry.com a run for their money. And I guess the two companies got together and talked, and they decided that archives.com was kind of going in a genealogy direction, whereas the company that owns it until this acquisition goes through, which is called Inflection, was going in more of a public records, people-finding type direction. And so they thought it it fit for Ancestry.com to purchase Archives.com. Right, and and that's big news considering that um, Archives really kind of made a name for itself this year with the involvement in the 1940 indexing project. In fact, they kind of won that contract, right? Yeah, I don't even know that Ancestry.com submitted a proposal for the contract. I I don't know if they did or not. So um, I think people, a lot of people are speculating that, oh, you know, they must have been so upset and now they're trying to kill off their competition. I'm not, I, I don't know that that's the case. Right. They sure didn't make it sound that way anyway. And I imagine these things do not happen overnight. So it's possible that if there was not a bid for proposal, they may have been thinking about this for quite some time. Right. And what they're saying is that um, Ancestry.com is planning on um, keeping Archives.com largely as is, as far as the user experience and content goes, and continuing to invest in this site and making it another... um, offering at a different price point, archives.com, I think it's something like $39.95 per year to subscribe to that site. So it just lets Ancestry.com bring in um, different people who are willing to pay a different amount from Ancestry.com's 150 thereabouts subscription. Well, it gives them an avenue for folks who are new to genealogy. 
exactly. who may not be jumping into the full ancestry mode. But uh, certainly, I think that that's been the the um, demographic of archives is just somebody dabbling, somebody who's just kind of jumping in there and checking right. it out. More entry level. Yeah, entry level, exactly. Now, were you surprised? Because I was looking through your, your blog post, Ancestry.com to acquire archives.com. It was posted on April 25th, 2012. And, you know, you're getting quite a few comments. I know I blogged about it on my blog. And um, again, comments, and I have to say, almost all of them are fairly negative. Were, were mm-hmm. you surprised by that? Not really. Um Ancestry.com has made a few acquisitions in the past several years, and you hear the same type of comments. People are concerned about monopolies, and you know they feel that Ancestry.com is is dominating the industry too much. So um, they they fear that they'll have less choice, and that especially with the 1940 Census Community Project, you know they're afraid that Ancestry.com is going to somehow alter archives.com index or, you know, now that they own that volunteer index that's being created, that was going to benefit archives.com. So the in my conversations with the CEOs of the two companies, they said that the project, the volunteer indexing project will continue as planned. Ancestry.com will still be doing its own indexing with a paid contractor. Archives.com will continue to participate in the volunteer project. So it sounds like they they definitely intend to have it uh, on both sites. Of course, different indexes will look different and they will search different. Mm-hmm. Boy, there's going to be a lot to keep track of. And um, I imagine right. you'll be blogging again about this topic. <laughs> yeah, I will be definitely keeping people up to date on it and, and what the differences between the two sites continue to be, just so people can make a decision as far as, you know, should I subscribe to both? Should I subscribe to one or the other? Just so they're not paying for the same thing twice. Exactly. Okay, well, that's a terrific update. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you very soon, I guess, next week in uh, Cincinnati, your neck of the woods for the NGS conference. Same here. We're really excited to see all the genealogists there. Wonderful. All right. Talk to you next month. Okay. One hundred and fifty years ago this month, on May 20th of 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act of 1862 into law. Now, acquiring a homestead was a three-step process. First, you had an application that had to be filed. Second, the land had to be improved. And third, the homesteader had to file for deed of title. Well, as with all interaction with the government, this process generated records. And here to tell us more about the records of the 1862 Homestead Act is Family Tree Magazine contributor Thomas McKenty. Welcome back to the podcast, Thomas. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, This is a big anniversary, and these are records that I know many people have been interested in, but sometimes they feel a little bit intimidated to get started. Where do you suggest that they begin their search for these types of Homestead Act records? Well, there are various entry points as to where you can get these records. Uh, One resource is, believe it or not, if your ancestor homesteaded in Nebraska, which is the site of the Homestead uh, National Monument of America in Beatrice, Nebraska, the Nebraska records are on Fold 3, which is formerly known as footnote.com. And they are indexing them. So, you know, that I know that's a very narrow look, but, you know, that's one place. Uh, the nice thing, Lisa, too, is you can see 
the uh, records for the first homesteader, who was Daniel Freeman of Illinois. His first claim was filed on January 1st, 1863, when claims were eligible. So that is a good starting point. Uh, you can also work with the National Archives, your regional branch of the National Archives, as well as the Bureau of Land Management, which has an online site as well. Exactly. And I love the Bureau of Land Management because so often we get to really see the original record itself, don't we? Those land patents. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, it can be a little bit intimidating for people, can be a little bit overwhelming because you need to know the legal description of the land. It's not, you know, it's not like an RFD address. Uh, you really, you need to know the legal description in order to work with the uh, BLM, known as Bureau of Land Management Database, to look up those records. Mm-hmm. And, and then they also, though, have a name search, don't they? They do have a name search, right? And 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 more, and they do have that as well. And uh, but also, if you want to get some of the maps and and really dig down into it, you know, uh, you do need to have that information as well. Or it's good to have it in case you need it, in case you can't find what you need through a name search. Absolutely, and then of course, taking that legal description to figure out where is this land today. Now, exactly. This all this um, information that you're talking about. Now, this came from a video class that you did in our recent spring virtual conference. Is that right? Right. It was called Acres of Records, the Homestead Act and Genealogy. And you're right. I think this is one of those record sets that fly under the radar. And unfortunately, I think the anniversary, what with all the other anniversaries going on right now, the Titanic recently and then Civil War anniversary and the War of 1812 coming up, I think the Homestead Act anniversary sort of is, is not getting its, uh, its notice that it really deserves. I think that's so true. There's a lot of genealogical competition out there. (laughs) Um, When it comes to homestead records, um, this does not apply to every state in the union. Tell us a little bit about that, because certainly we may think, oh, well, my ancestor was a farmer, but that doesn't mean that he had a homestead or that he was even in the state that would have applied for one. Tell us about that. No, basically, overall, it really helped settle the plain states. Much of not even Midwest, like Illinois, I believe, only had 9,000 homestead applications. But if you're talking parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, definitely Nebraska, uh, Montana, Montana, I believe, had the largest number of homestead filings. So you're talking Colorado, the Plain States, even as far as Alaska. And Lisa, this is a little bit of a, a nugget here, is people don't realize that the Homestead Act, the last one was filed in 1975. So you will find records as far, you know, not far, but uh, in in the recent past. So no, it, it doesn't mean if you're ancestor was a farmer, that they were a homesteader per se, because states like Indiana were already settled. Uh, We're talking public land that was given to people willing to develop the land and improve upon it over a five-year period. Exactly. And wasn't this sort of the government's way to ensure that, um, let's say, a southern plantation owner who might say, hey, I'd love to get 300 acres and then bring slaves onto the land, they were trying to discourage that. They were trying to make this kind of fair game for everybody. Is that right? Exactly. If you look at the date, 1862, we're right in the middle of the Civil War. And when Lincoln signed it, you know, slavery was a big issue. There was also a free land movement. And so uh, they wanted to make sure that no matter what happened with the outcome of the Civil War, that at least during that war period, that you're right, the plantation owners would not 
try and take that federal land and then uh, bring in slavery to those areas. So that was part of the move. Also, part of it, Lisa, was uh, a fight against some uh, land companies that were speculators. And the original intent, although some people did manage to game the system, even Mm -hmm. some corporations, was that you're putting 160 acres into the hands of the common man. Exactly. And, and then that way, you've really moved the population west. Right. Well, finally, before I let you go, give us a sense, when we head to the National Archives, we go to Bureau of Land Management, what, what are some of the names of some of the documents that we're going to be keeping our eyes out for? Well, you've got basically the application. Uh, you're, you, you know, you have a folder. It's the way I look at it is there's a folder with a lot of information. It was a three-step process. You basically filed your application, uh, and then you had to do a claimant form, a witness form. That is where we're, we have a lot of records because sometimes it wasn't just enough to say, yes, I built a home and I improved the, the 160 acres over five years. You may have had to prove your citizenship if you were an immigrant. You may have had to prove your war service, and you the process was accelerated for people that served in the military. And then the witness uh, forms, the ones that are rich in information, especially for genealogists. This is where we get the wife testifying, uh, neighbors testifying. You, know, you get those maiden names. You get all this information. And then finally, you do get the, the deed or the title which finishes the process. Uh, Unfortunately, if someone didn't complete the process, there really isn't much paperwork beyond the application. So keep that in mind that you may have, I believe, I can't remember what the number is, Lisa, but I think that it may have been, I know it's well over 50%, if not close to 70% of people that started the process did finish the process. But you may find that for your ancestor, all you get is the application. Exactly. You're absolutely right. It was just a portion of the people who actually got started who finished. Exactly. And if you're lucky and your ancestors were in Alaska, you're going to be in that tail end group that Thomas is talking about as far as uh, it didn't finish up until the 1970s. So lots of records there to go mine. If you want to learn more about it, I'll have information in the show notes on how to get your hands on his video class, which I think was just a wonderful overview. It really will give you the confidence to jump in there and get involved in Homestead Records. Oh, Thomas, as always, thank you so much for all your help and encouragement to tackle this record group. Great. Thank you, Lisa. still have my 1971 edition of Everton's Handybook for Genealogists that I bought with my allowance as a kid, and it was invaluable for determining county boundaries in any given time period. Well, in today's 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, I've asked Nancy Hendrickson to join me to talk about a terrific website that provides county boundary data and so much more. It's the Newberry Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. Welcome back to the show, Nancy. Hey, Lisa. Thanks so much. I always love being here. Well, you know, you featured the Atlas of Historical County Boundaries in a toolkit article last year in the magazine, and I was hoping that you could tell our listeners what this little handy website can do for them. You know, Lisa, genealogists live and die by vital records, and vital records are kept at a geographic location, most often at a county level. So if you don't know 
the county that your ancestor lived in in a particular period of time, you really don't know which county to go to to start looking for records. And I'm the first to admit I spent an embarrassing amount of time looking for records in one county when I should have simply gone and looked at changing boundary lines and known that the records I wanted were in the county next door. And I I doubt that I'm the only person who's done that. So the Atlas of Historical County Boundaries is a great resource for genealogists because you can view changing boundary lines not only for each state on an interactive map, you can also download a boundary timeline for every single county. And this is really important because, for example, at one point in time, Virginia was a huge state. And sometime after the Revolutionary War, the the area on the west side of the Appalachians wanted to break free from Virginia. And at that time, that whole, that whole area was called Kentucky County. So it wasn't until 1792 that Kentucky actually pulled away from Virginia. So if you're looking for land records or vital statistics, pre-1792, they're actually Virginia records and post their Kentucky records. However, to throw kind of a, a monkey wrench in the whole thing, I've read various um, statements that some of the records of of Kentucky are actually still in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So when you get back into that area, you know, you really have to be um, very detailed in how you search. So that's basically what the Atlas does. It has a lot of features because there are interactive maps. You can... um, click on any state and you can choose from a drop down box a date and it will show you the county lines for that specific date and it'll do the same for a state it's really a wonderful site it really is and it's of course free which is wonderful it's free and it and you know it's so instant when you go in there and uh click on a state and then like you say just select a, a date a year that you're looking for boom, you know, the map just totally evolves into what it was at that time. And as you say, that's the key to tracking down these records. Um, and you can, you know, even download some of that data, even into programs like Google Earth. I mean, there are so many different options of ways of using the data they have on the website. You know, that's one of my favorite things to do with that website. Uh, what you just said is to download the file that you can uh, upload into Google Earth And, you know, I think a lot of people might hesitate to do that thinking it's too technical, but really all you do is download the file and, you know, it specifically shows you the file for each state. And all you have to do is open Google Earth and open that particular file. And it is an amazing thing to, to look at Google Earth and see those historical boundaries superimposed over Earth. It's one of my favorite things to do. I hope more people do it because it's not as hard as it sounds. That's so true. That's so true. It it really is just a download. And then when you click on the file, it automatically opens Google Earth and launches all this data. So that's terrific. Right. And you probably... Um, you probably talk about this in in your one of your Google books, I would imagine. Yeah, the genealogist Google toolbox. Uh, we've got about 
five chapters on Google Earth. And um, absolutely, this website is a key part in the in using that program for family history research. And you know what's great about when you import the data into Google Earth, you'll get a little time a time slider, and you can use the slider. Uh, to view the boundaries at a specific date. You can also launch an animation that, you know, shows the actual changes over a period of time. Um, You can also adjust that animation speed. So there's all kinds of really cool stuff you can do with the the, um, data from the historical atlas. Absolutely. So Nancy, how do we get to the website? What's the uh, website address? Well, it is. I'm just going to read it to you because you're going to be better off going to Google and type in Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. But the website is http colon slash slash publications.newberry.org forward slash ahcbp. A-H-C-B-P. So that's why we're going to go to Google. (laughs) And we're going to type in Atlas of Historical County Boundaries. But in the show notes, I will have a link that will take people directly there. It's a terrific website. I'll have a link to the issue of the magazine that features Nancy's toolkit article, which talks all about it. And this is one of those sites you're going to want to bookmark because it's one that you're going to benefit from so much. As Nancy said, she has done it. I have done it. You've spent time searching in a county where you're in the wrong county for the wrong time frame. And this website is really going to help straighten that out and save you time, get you to the right place. Terrific. Thank you so much, Nancy. Appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks so much again. When you're trying to pinpoint ancestral residences, determine wealth, or even trace descendants, land records can often provide answers. Once you get past unfamiliar terminology and survey systems. In today's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Diana Christman Smith. She's the instructor of the Land Records 101 course at Family Tree University to cover the top five pairs of terms that cause the most confusion in land research. Welcome back to the show, Diana. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be back. Well, Diana, when we work with land records, we hear terms like grantee and grantor, and sometimes it's hard to keep things straight. So, Let's jump right in with your top five list of confusing terms and see if we can't clear things up. What's the first confusing terms or pair of terms that you have on your top five list? I have meets and bounds versus rectangular survey system. Now, if people are researching primarily in one part of the country, they may be familiar with one of these survey systems and not the other. And when they encounter the one that they're not used to, they fall apart. (laughs) So just a brief explanation. Um, Meets and bounds is a method of describing land, which uses normally physical features of local geography, um, boundaries of neighbors' properties. Uh, The meets are the measurements that are used, and the bounds are the points defining the edges of the property. This is primarily used in the original colonies and certain states which were territories of those colonies 
or which were fully, mainly fully inhabited before they became states. So, for example, it's the 13 colonies plus parts of Ohio that belong to Connecticut and Virginia, West Virginia, and then Texas, Florida, and Hawaii, because their lands were already distributed before we became a country. So meets and bounds will be found, for the most part, in those areas. Ohio has seven different ways of doing it, so it's, it's kind of a hybrid. It has meets and bounds, and it has what's called rectangular survey. The rectangular survey system is grids, and it starts with defining a baseline, which is east and west, and a principal meridian, which is north and south. And those are the starting points for the surveyors to determine the land. Everything west of the original colonies, except the states I mentioned, has been done under the rectangular survey system. There are a couple of different starts initially, but after Ohio, basically, they're all the same. The primary meridian is not just one that goes all the way across the country. It broke the country up into sections as it was acquired. So as four states came in, those four states were divided into the grid lines so that they could be measured. So the rectangular survey system has the meridians and the baselines. As I said, the baselines go east and west, and north and south of those are townships, and the primary meridian goes north and south and to the east and to the west of that are ranges, and those are all terms that you'll hear in conjunction with rectangular survey system. Great. Okay, so that that's great. That's a um, a nice definition because I think of meets and bounds, and it is tough to remember. But if I think of meets as them out there in the fields measuring, and then the bounds are the boundaries, we can kind of visualize things. What's the next tough, uh, confusing terminology on your list? Okay, the next one on my list is grantee and grantor. You'll often see that in, in the land records, and they usually will have separate alphabetical lists. So it helps to understand that the grantee is the person or party receiving property by grant or by sale. So the grantee is the, the buyer, and the grantor is the party transferring the property, again, by grant or by sale. So that's the seller. So it's easy, but it's easy to mix them up. Yeah, absolutely. So the grantor is the one doing the giving, <laughs> doing the selling. Correct. And the grantee is the one who's receiving it. Correct. Yeah, those always get mixed up. How about your number three item? Okay, number three um, goes back and refers a little bit to the meets and bounds in the rectangular survey. The rectangular survey, particularly... The baseline I mentioned, that's the beginning point for the measurement of north and south townships, or townships north and south, more accurately. And the principal meridian is the beginning point for measuring east or west ranges. And there are 37 points across the country where a principal meridian and a baseline intersect. So they've, they've established a number of different areas, as I mentioned before. It's not just one long meridian that goes across the country. It's by the area that was to be surveyed at that point in time. Normally, one section like that will cover a state or more. But there are some states that have several of these 
starting points. So there's a map on the Bureau of Land Management General Land Office website that um, you can get a map that shows all the principal meridians and the baselines. And I will send you that link for your show notes, if that's okay. Oh, that's perfect, because I was just going to ask, ah, how do we figure out where these are? Okay, so the Bureau of Land Management has a map that we can reference so we can see where these meridians are. Right, and if you go to their website in the reference center, uh, it's under the appendices for the principal meridians and baselines map. So it's perfect. It's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And number four? Number four is deed and title. Both are legal documents referencing the ownership of land, but the deed transfers ownership, whereas the title establishes evidence of ownership. So the title is not, say, Joe sold to Bill. The title says Bill owns it, and the deed says Joe sold to Bill. Uh, and that's the one that kind of gets me sometimes. Okay, so the, the deed is saying it's going. there's two people involved. How about that? So there's two people involved, one who's giving, one who's receiving. But the title just says, here's who owns it. Correct. Oh, okay, great. Now, when, do, when does the deed happen then? This is during the sale. Is that correct? The deed is during the sale, correct. It, it's the notification to the government entity that owns it, uh, that, that owned it originally or whatever, where they are. But that's their notification that this property is changing hands. The title is usually issued later on request or after the sale is completed to show that you do own the, the title to this land. Makes a lot of sense. So that deed is the notification and uh, talks about who the two parties are and the title being the ownership. Oh, perfect. And number five? Um, one other thing on the deed, the deed will also say what the consideration was, how much they paid for it, that sort of thing. And if there's uh, a wife signing Wade Dower rights in some of the early deeds, that'll be on the deed, not on the title. And would that be different than the bill of sale or, you know, whatever the, the sales contract document is? Um, the deed usually is the contract, but there's often another contract. But the deed will say what the consideration was and when this is to take effect. It will note if there's a mortgage on it, but the mortgage may also be in the deed book. So look for those. So the deed book would be then a listing of transactions. Correct. Perfect. Okay. And number five? Number five is quick claim deeds and warranty deeds. Two different kinds of deeds that you'll see. A quick claim deed says, I'm the seller and I'm giving up any claims to the rights of the property in question, whether I own it or not. It doesn't guarantee that I have clear title to that property. It just says, I'm giving up whatever rights I may have and you trust that I have enough rights to sell it. A warranty deed, the grantor guarantees that he holds clear title to the property, has the right to sell it, and that this guarantee is not limited to the time he has owned the property, but extends back. So in other words, a warranty deed says, I own this property, and I know I have checked, and nobody else has a right to it. It is mine, and it usually will say something about protecting the buyer and his heirs and assigns forever, something like that. Mm -hmm. That's a warranty deed because it says, I'm selling this to you, and by the way, I have the right to do that, and nobody else does. 
a quick claim deed says, I'm selling it to you, and you're trusting me that I have the right to do that, but I'm not guaranteeing it. So, th- so the logical question is, why and when would somebody use a quick claim deed? Quick claim deeds you'll sometimes see in the case of a death. The father died, the children inherited the land, and all of the children but one will give quick claim deeds to the one child that's going to keep the property. And he may pay them for it, or they may just say, here, you take it, you took care of daddy, you get the property. So they'll sign, sign quick claim deeds and say, it's his. They're saying they're giving up their right to it, and it's his problem to determine if they all had the rights to it. So then when he eventually sells it, it will probably be a warranty deed. So I imagine that quick claim deeds actually come in handy for the person who eventually goes for the warranty deed, like you say, that they've got extra documentation releasing other people from their claims. Correct. And that does help. And as I said, the quick claim deed is usually just to handle a fast transaction, usually among family members, but not always. Ah, wonderful. Gosh, you've really covered five, I think, of the top five pairs of terms that that people get confused with. And yet with a little bit of clarity, boy, it makes it so much more straightforward to then feel confident to dig into those land records. Now, I know that you teach the Lands uh, Records 101 class, and you've got a couple of others coming up on Family Tree University. Um, Tell us when your next classes are coming up. I'm sure there are some folks who will want to attend. Okay, I have uh, two classes starting today, um, but you can register this week for Civil War Research and uh, census, <laughs> sorry, census <laughs> online and offline. And, it's been and this a- is the, the first week of May of 2012. Correct. So up until May 4th, they're accepting registrations in those two. So April 30th, those courses start, but you can register until May 5th. The Land Records 101 is starting on May 14th, and City Directories is starting on May 14th. And then U.S. Military Records, which is another popular course, is starting on May 23rd. And that covers all the conflicts that the U.S. has been in from the beginning to the most recent. We touch on the Civil War, but it doesn't focus on the Civil War. So there's a little overlap in those two classes, but not a lot. Great. And and even if you're listening to this episode when it first comes out, even if it's a day or so after class starts, you can still jump in. These are four-week classes. Is that right, Diane? Right. They're four-week classes, and they're at your own pace. Some people will complete the whole course as soon as the lessons are released. They release the lessons, the first two usually when the class opens, and then the next one a few days later, and the next one the next week or something like that. So some people will finish the whole course in two weeks. Other people wait until the last week and do all four lessons at once then. It really doesn't matter. It's your own pace. Uh, We'd like you to do it a week at a time so you can really think about the exercises and take your time with the lesson. There's lesson material, there's supplemental reading material, and the exercises I give will send you out to look for things for um, assigned people that I give you, plus look for your own people too. So I always have that included in there. So people get sidetracked. (laughs) Sure. Well, and if you do it week by week, then you really get to take advantage of communicating with the instructor or someone like you who can answer questions along the way. That's a big bonus. Right. And I enjoy the classes. Wonderful. Well, if you would like to enjoy the Land Records 101 class, head to the show notes or any of the classes that Diana mentioned, as well as information on her top five list. And of course, that link to the BLM website. 
wonderful. Thank you so much, Diana. You've uh, given us all a big boost in our land record research. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure being with you again. I look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, everyone. This is Carrie Scott, the social media expert at Family Tree Magazine. Facebook finally moved all of its users to the new timeline last month, and this might have a silver lining for your genealogical research. I'll tell you why in this edition of the Social Media Minute. Facebook's new timeline is here, and not everyone is happy about it. Change is hard, and many genealogists are still getting used to the new format. There's one thing about the new timeline that's actually helpful for most genealogists, though. It encourages people to list the major events in their lives, and that's something that makes life much easier for genealogists. Last week, I got a hot lead on a long-lost branch of my family. I found an obituary that was recent enough to list family members who I knew were likely to be still alive. I went looking for some of them on Facebook. Their surname was very common, so it was tough, but the locations and dates on one of the timelines I found helped me determine that I'd found the right cousin. Creating a timeline of our own lives is also an important task for genealogists. We all want to make sure we can be found by our own descendants, and modern migration paths can involve zigzagging across the country or around the world. Filling in your own timeline and then printing it out and saving it for your descendants is something they'll really appreciate later on. I sure wish I had a Facebook timeline for some of my hard-to-find ancestors. Check out our podcast show notes page for more information on how to use Facebook's new timeline. Well, as we wrap up this May 2012 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Well, in this episode, we've been talking all about land records. And of course, specifically, we are celebrating the Homestead Act of 1862. And of course, the 150th anniversary. Do you have um, other resources that we can kind of pull from in addition to the ones we talked about here on the episode? Well, definitely one package that I think people should check out, especially if you want to explore some of those resources that we talked about earlier. Um, we have a land records research value pack on shopfamilytree.com. It includes our independent study version of our land records class, the um, video that Thomas talked about, and some other really good resources too. And that is available through the shop and watch for a sale on that to happen actually um, toward the end of the month. Oh, perfect. We love sales, saving money. Okay. And I understand also, this is actually National Photo Month. It is. And what genealogist doesn't have a ton of photos, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We could have done a whole episode just on that. We could have. Well, um, you know, Maureen Taylor, who is a frequent contributor to Family Tree Magazine, she has our photo detective blog and um, column. She uh, has been on the show several times offering tips. We have a great book from her. It's part of our ultimate photo preservation collection. Um, we It actually includes her book preserving your family photos um signed copy and we also have her uncovering your ancestry through family photographs as an pdf ebook that you can download to your computer 
Um, so lots of great advice there for discovering and preserving your family photos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, I just had her on my podcast episode this month, and I didn't even realize it was National Photo Month. <laughs> but she was talking about uh, Bonnets and Hats, which is another really fun book that she did. And uh, let's see here. Also, it's Jewish American Heritage Month. Any resources for that? Yes, we have a Jewish American collection, a bundle of products called our Jewish American Genealogy Value Pack, and it includes a couple of video classes and some downloadable articles and good resources for, in particular, tracing Eastern European Jewish ancestors, which, you know, so many of the Jewish immigrants during the late uh, 19th and early 20th century came from that part of the world. And so um, we've got some great resources in there for tracing them. Wonderful. And as if we are not busy enough this month, it's also Memorial Day is right around the corner. It is. And what a great opportunity to um, discover and honor the soldiers and veterans in your family tree. So look for some special discounts on our military-related resources in the shop. And yeah, preserve those stories. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of nice to have these holidays, not only to honor their memories, but it also kind of jogs us. Uh, Got to go look because Allison's going to have a deal for us on on resources that will help us to further explore those areas of our family tree. All right. Uh, it's been a fascinating episode. And thank you so much for all the additional resources. Uh, we will talk to you next month. Sounds good. Thanks so much for joining me for this May 2012 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis. You'll find that at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. And stay tuned because the Genealogy Insider blog is going to have lots more information on the anniversary of the Homestead Act of 1862. And then take a few minutes to explore the Newberry Atlas of Historical County Boundaries website. It's a terrific resource, and you're definitely going to want to have that one bookmarked on your web browser. And finally, head on over to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode, which will include information and website links for everything that we covered on today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, GenealogyGems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. And both of those shows are also available free through iTunes. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.